Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode five of the podcast, History Does You. Today, we're going to be talking about the Congress for Cultural Freedom with Dylan Fox, who's a fellow DU student at Denver. For their, To major in uh, history at the University of Denver, you have to do a senior thesis. Um, and a lot of seniors do really in-depth research on some really cool topics. Today, we're going to be talking to Dylan about the Congress for Cultural Freedom. And before we get into the interview, I definitely wanted to do some background in uh, the context of this. Um, I didn't really know anything about, so it did require some outside research. But I definitely think it's an interesting topic, specifically because there's a perception um, and a deep focus in the field of history on the Cold War in terms of proxy conflicts, um, economic and military supremacy between the United States. But you have to think about the United States and the Soviet Union in the context of the Cold War with the systems that they both implemented, obviously with the Soviet Union, with communism, um, with the state controlling every single aspect of a person's life and um, Western liberal democracy with the United States and a lot of Western European countries uh, that focus more on liberal values and freedom of speech and freedom of the press and all of this stuff that often gets overlooked. Uh, so the Congress for Cultural Freedom was essentially a anti-communist ad- advocacy group uh, that focused heavily on promoting uh, Western democratic values in art, in culture, in movies, um, all this different stuff. And really a lot of the thinkers in philosophy and culture and um, architects and stuff um, kind of formed this group in order to project Western influence and culture uh, across um, not just in Western or not just in Europe, but really across the globe. And Dylan focused specifically on the uh, cultural center in Japan, which is super interesting because um, Asia was um, a hotbed for the Cold War, specifically with Korea and Vietnam, also China turning communism in that, or to communism in 1949 after the end of the Chinese Civil War. Uh, so we really covered the entire um, formation of the Congress for Cultural Freedom up until its ending in the 1960s when it was found out that the CIA was backing this group uh, because the CIA can't keep its hands off anything. Um, yeah, so it's a really interesting interview. Um, And we definitely go into depth about, I think, a topic that really gets overlooked in the field of history and in general. So um, it's definitely a really cool interview. And, um, yeah. All right. So we have a pretty good um, interview today for our our podcast, the first one of the podcast. So this is pretty exciting. I'm hoping to add this uh, every single episode. So today we're going to be having Dylan Fox on today. He's a fellow DU student. He's a junior majoring in history and he's from Conifer, Colorado. And his senior thesis is on the Tokyo affiliate of the Cultural Congress of Freedom. So welcome. Uh, so for starters, what in the world is the Cultural Congress of Freedom? Well, so the, the Congress of, for Cultural Freedom was a kind of intellectual cultural organization that was backed by the CIA and was active during the Cold War from about 50 to 66, where they were eventually, their activities were exposed by the New York Times and they kind of dissolved from that point on. Interesting. So how does this program start? Because we know with the Cold War, there's the military side of things with proxy wars and like Vietnam and all these other places. There's like economics that are involved with this, but this seems to focus specifically on the cultural side of things. 
Um, how did this really get started? Was this like a U.S. government initiative? Was this a CIA initiative? Was it a State Department initiative? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you know, how much time do you have? I, I can kind of go through and follow like a, the intro of what my thesis was talking about. There's kind of a, cue, a few key events that I would hit on. So it starts in uh, 1939 in New York. There is a uh, philosophy professor named Sidney Hook of uh, New York University. And him and his mentor, John Dewey, they kind of decide to form this, uh, this private citizens group that they call the Committee for Cultural Freedom. And they do this because, and I think something really important to keep in mind, like researching this whole topic, is that you have to think kind of in the context of like, before like like this period so uh prior to world war ii there was um there were large factions of americans who supported both the fascists and the communists and so hook and dewey uh, formed this this group to kind of target that because they they thought that both of those philosophies were very dangerous to intellectual freedom and so then you go forward about six years and 4,000 miles away. And while you're in occupied Berlin, that's kind of where the start of the actual cultural Cold War is. So only a few months after the end of the war, the occupying Soviet authorities, uh, they begin to have a, like operas in the undamaged opera halls of Berlin. And they, they invite uh, Americans to join along with them, but the, the the Americans kind of look at the playbill of this event, and they see just by looking at like the the works that are on display, there's this kind of this this hostile sense of like socialist superiority. And um, so, in that same year, there's a there's this this OSS agent. His name is Michael Josselson. And for anyone who doesn't know, the OSS is the Office of Strategic Services. That's the intelligence wing of the U.S. military in World War II. They're the precursor of the CIA. And so Michael Josselson is actually sent to uh, go retrieve this, like, cache of, like, thousands of uh, opera costumes from the German state opera company. The Nazis had hidden in, like, a salt mine because they didn't want them to get damaged before the end of the war. So he goes to retrieve those with a friend of his, Viktor Nabokov. And Viktor Nabokov is a white Russian emigre. He flees from the country during the, the revolution. And he's also a officer of the U.S. Information Control Division, which is the kind of, that's the part of the government which is re responsible for cultural denazification. And he's also the cousin to uh, Viktor Nabokov, actually the author of Lolita. And so while the two are driving, somehow Josselson collides head on with the Soviet roadblock <laughs> and is just completely incapacitated. And um, the Soviet, but the Soviets pull him out, they fix him up, they transfer him to a Russian run hospital. And then despite the fact that he's like an OSS agent, they just let him return back to, um, back to US territory. And so then you kind of have on August 25th, uh, 1948, there is the, the World Congress of Intellectuals held in Poland. And on the surface, the event is supposed to be kind of a meeting of some of the greatest like intellectual minds of that period. Um, they even start by reading a letter that Albert Einstein had sent in, kind of in support of the Congress. 
But behind the scenes, it turns out that this whole conference is actually organized by the Information Bureau of the Communist and Workers' Parties. That's the common form, which is the kind of cultural tool of the of Stalin's Soviet Union for spreading, you know, socialist thought worldwide. And so at this Congress, um, it kind of starts with this, this rhetoric of like world peace, you know, peace between the USSR and the US. But over time, the, the Kremlin spokesmen that are there, they start like making a, like very targeted jabs at like Western culture. Like a, one in particular is they say, uh, if hyenas could type and jackals could use a pen, they would write like T.S. Eliot, Eugene O'Neill, and uh, et cetera. And another person actually declares there's no such thing as Western culture. So with the outbreak of all of that, that's kind of like the first, those are the first few events that show that the Soviets are kind of making this cultural push against uh, the U.S. And during this time, the U.S. is kind of seen worldwide as not really having any kind of culture. You know, they think of it as like Cadillacs and hamburgers. But then on uh, March 25th, that's finally when you get to, uh, it's called the Scientific and Cultural Congress for World Peace. And this is an event that's organized by this organization that's affiliated with the Communist Party USA. And so what they did was they kind of, they wanted to model the Intellectuals Conference and they invited um, a bunch of Soviet delegates to join them. And so unbeknownst to the organizers, and this was inside the, the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City, um, Sidney Hook and a, a new version of his kind of that Committee for Cultural Freedom, which he called the Americans for Intellectual Freedom, they had used union contacts that they had in the city to force the hotel to book them a suite during this conference. And so inside, while this is going on, where they're kind of inviting the Soviet delegates and they're getting this conference ready, you have like Hook and this just team of dozens and dozens of volunteers and writers, all of them who are leftists, but they're opposed to the Soviet Union. And so you, you also have uh, Nicholas Nabokov happens to be there. So when the conference gets going, the AIF, they start to uh, harass the event organizers. They do things like, you know, they're organizing protests and pickets. They're um, intercepting all their mail that comes through their hotel. They start doctoring like, their press releases. But the most kind of notable thing that comes out of that is that they manage to seat some of their members directly within the, conf uh, within the conference. And so while they're having kind of these Q&A panels with the Soviet artists, all these AIF members start asking like really politically charged questions of the Soviet delegates. Like uh, one, one example that I included in my own is uh, Nabokov himself actually goes up to the Soviet composer um, uh, Shostakovich and he asks uh, Shostakovich if he agrees with the decision of the Soviet Union to prevent certain music from being uh, performed in there. And uh, Shostakovich effectively can't, he, you know, he can't publicly disagree with the decisions of the party at all. So he kind of like gets up and he's like forced to really sheepishly admit, you know, he says like, I support the decisions of the Soviet party. And these kind of, these questions are important because it, it's what the AIF does is that they kind of 
put all these these communists in a box and they're like they're making it very obvious to the press that's watching it and they're making it obvious to the people in attendance that the Soviets do not have any dedication to intellectual freedom themselves. They're kind of suppressing culture within themselves. And so after the conference, it kind of closes out with Hook, Nabokov, and the AIF. Um, they organize this like public anti-communist rally a few blocks away. You know, there, there are speeches and it's, you know, they talk about how great of a success all of it was. And then by the end of the speech, there's this, this figure in the back of the crowd, and he kind of like comes out. He comes towards a he comes to a Nabokov and and um, and Hook, and he he like compliments them on their their whole operation. He offers to pay for their suite at the Waldorf, which was you know huge bill, three days worth of this bridal suite. And um, it only takes a little bit for Nabokov to recognize that the guy that approached them is actually Michael Josselson, that OSS agent from before. And so Josselson had been planted directly by an officer of the, the CIA, I think it was Covert Affairs Division. And so Josselson recruited the two to kind of replicate what they had been doing, but they were going to do it now officially unofficially, right, with a CIA backing. And so they spend um, about a year, they spend a few months kind of, you know, setting up the framework, networking for this, this kind of event, and then getting everything in place. And then finally, on June 25th, 1950, uh, same day as the outbreak of the Korean War, actually, the Congress for Cultural Freedom finally has their, like, debut rally in Berlin, that's kind of when they declare themselves to the world. They kind of reveal they have this this huge this stacked list of all these influential artists, philosophers, thinkers, you know, academics, and they hold this event that's kind of declares that you know this organization exists to kind of fight the 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 worldwide kind of romanticism of communism and communist culture. So to answer your question, yes, it, it, it's. From the outset, it's supposed to look like this, this private organization, but inside, most of the money that they get does come from the CIA. So it seems that, obviously, the U.S. created this prior, even had these sort of ideas before World War II when Soviet Union and U.S. was allies, but... Do you know the Soviet Union was participating in anything similar? Were they setting up uh, organizations to promote communism and communist culture? Um, and were there any kind of like specific events uh, within the Soviet government that led them to either respond or start this even before mm -hmm. this all came about? Yeah, so like I mentioned, um, the two best kind of examples of that are, I believe, just so I don't mix them up, you have the um, the Communist International, that's the common turn, and that's active, I'm not sure the exact dates, but that's around before World War II, and that's kind of an example of like a Soviet cultural organization doing the same thing, but they actually get dissolved in '43 by Stalin as kind of like a, a show, like wartime solidarity, you know? But the um, communist, the, the workers party that I mentioned you, the common, the common form was kind of created to resume that in 50, or in 47. 
until they were also disbanded in 56. And then that was, that was by vote through the Central Committee as part of desalinization. And then when you kind of go broader, you know, not just the Soviet Union, one of the things that I think is interesting is that um, like Cuba is actually a country that has kind of probably the biggest um, answer to the Congress for Cultural Freedom. They have an organization called Casa de las Americas, which does effectively all the same tactics of the, of the, the Congress, but it's just done entirely kind of within the like Latin American world. And they enjoy a fair amount of success. I believe they, they're still around today, the Casa de las Americas is, and I believe they're, they have an award in literature that's still pretty highly regarded. Interesting. So specifically, how does this end up in Japan? Because obviously Japan is an enemy of the United States post-World War II. The U.S. comes and occupies the mainland of Japan. So when does the specific office get set up in Japan? Well, that's kind of a complicated question to ask because I believe it's it's as early as 1951, um, only a little bit after their debut event. That the what it is is the the organization is divided between it has what's called the Paris Secretariat, which is kind of this like executive level headquarters that handles all the operations of kind of the organization as a whole. But then they have these kind of affiliate offices, and these are all based in specific countries, you know, organized from staff that are native to those countries to kind of work there. And so in 51, that's when they respond to a letter from a group of uh, Japanese intellectuals that kind of pr proposes this Congress be made. And at first, they're very excited about it, but they don't really vet, like, the credentials or the abilities of this kind of first round of people. And so they end up coming back, and I think it's um, it's only a few years later that it's the this iteration is called the Japanese Committee for Cultural Freedom, I believe. Yeah, and they by they kind of send a report back to Paris, and they don't manage to recruit any new members after a certain period of time. They're they're really stagnant. Um, all of these. Uh, CCF offices tend to have like a publication associated with it. Like that's one of the main ways that they would kind of, you know, get into the cultural conscious is that they had um, either like magazines or academic journals that they would publish. And so they looked at the, uh, the journal of the, um, the Japanese committee and it was, it was uh, too far to the left. It was like run entirely by this, this one guy who was also, editing a, a socialist newspaper called the Workers News. And so the, the whole thing was just a, a disaster at first, basically. And the office cables this um, Japanologist named Herbert Passon, who was, who was already in Japan. And um, they, they kind of, they have him just dismantle like the whole organization. And he just, you know, they fire everyone, they cut off their funding. And then they ask Passon to kind of restart the efforts. But because Passon himself has spent so much time in Japan, he, he understands the culture a little more. So he spends quite a few years kind of like, like networking in the Japanese intellectual community, and like building these relationships. And eventually there is kind of a, there's a new iteration called the uh, Japan Cultural Forum. And that's kind of, that's the office that, uh, that I'm actually studying myself. And 
Yeah, so the, the cultural form um, has some more success in Japan, not necessarily, you know, this kind of the, the hard question is, is measuring the success of these offices, but it plays this, this critically important role because like going back to like you said, you know, like what, what does Japan actually, like what role do they play in the Cold War? Is that after, after they're uh, defeated and they unconditionally surrender to the, to the Americans, you know, they're occupied for, for years straight until I believe 53. And one of the, the biggest influences that you don't really see much, many people talking about is that while Japan is occupied by America, there is this team of, I can't remember how many people it is, but it's this, this, te this team of ex almost exclusively Americans. And they're convened by General Douglas MacArthur to uh, actually write the entire Japanese constitution. And um, they, they, then they sent it to the Diet, which is their, you know, their national legislator, and they were told to vote on it, but they also weren't really given much of a choice. You know, they were told to vote yes. And interestingly enough, that, um, that constitution still exists to this day, completely unamended. So even, even past the occupation, there's a ton of American influence within Japan. I mean, there, there are multiple military bases within Japan. Uh, U.S. military has a huge presence there. And as the Cold War kind of goes on, you know, it becomes increasingly apparent how important it is to have that, not only just that presence in Asia in general, but to have a base for forces to launch off. Because, I mean, you have eventually, you know, China goes communist. And then a little further down the line, you have Vietnam and then North Korea. So there's this that kind of that idea of containment theory and domino theory, those ideas that the more countries that go communist, it kind of spreads. Japan is kind of seen as this like bulwark where there's enough American influence that it needs to be kind of protected. Interesting. So do you think in the wider scope of the Cold War, do you think this was part of a larger strategy of the U.S. government or was this specifically contained to the CIA and this intellectual committee that thought they were just going to respond specifically to Soviet communist culture um, or was it more of just kind of a sideshow in your review and in your research? It, it was definitely part of this kind of um, this wider operation across a lot of branches of the American government. I mean, it, it's all kind of rolled generally under this sphere of this, this term called like public diplomacy or cultural diplomacy. And you can see these, these elements of, um, you know, Americans trying to like counteract Soviet, Soviet culture, especially in the state department is one of the most major um, areas that you can see this. Like I find, Something else that's really interesting is that while all this is going on in the 50s, throughout the 50s and 60s, one of the things the, the State Department does is they, they convene these like cultural ambassadors that are, that are jazz musicians. And they, they finance these jazz musicians to go through the Eastern Bloc and just perform because it's kind of this, this way to not only fight that perception that, you know, there's no American culture because Japan or jazz is one of the, um, one of the, one of the few like uniquely American musical styles. And also it was a way for them to kind of fight back at, um, 
a lot of the Soviets used um, the, the civil rights movement and like the kind of racism that was present in America in, the, in those days to kind of fight back against those, accusa those accusations that were being leveled at them. And so they actually employed, um, it was like, like Louis Armstrong was, was one of those, those uh, black artists that was going through and playing jazz. So there's this, this like very like multifaceted operation that's going through. And I, there, I wrote, wrote a few others down. Like there are also organizations called like, um, like Radio Free Asia, which still exists to this day. And it's kind of this, um, it's this government supported news service that's that, um, you know, focuses on like Asian news and they, um, they tend to uh, take a, take a pretty critical stance towards like a communist China. There is a kind of a similar thing to that in Europe called Radio Liberty. And then there's kind of a general organization called Voice of America. So at this time, there are actually a lot of organizations that are kind of in the same sphere. But I would say that the, at least for as long as it's around, the Congress for Cultural Freedom is probably the biggest, most active, and most influential example of that. So this technically doesn't last very long in the wider scope of the Cold War being dissolved in 1966. So how in the world does the New York Times get onto this, and what is the reaction um, in the United States in general? Was it viewed like the um, the Cultural Congress uh, was a good thing, or was it a bad thing? Um, what's your take on this? So the that's probably the easiest question to answer is is how they got onto it. It was actually um, it was during 1964. Uh, this representative Wright Patman of uh, Texas, I believe, he was on a congressional tax inquiry. And I'm not sure exactly how, but simply while he was on this inquiry, he found like some sort of documents or evidence that showed that the CIA was supporting private foundations through donations. And so that kind of it took a year, but it took a year until the, the New York Times formed an investigative team. But they, with that kind of piece of information, they kind of carried it through and they followed all those leads and they investigated the, the CCF for over a whole year before they eventually published this series of exposés. And um, the, the reaction to it was, was pretty strong. I mean... Like when I kind of told you like the, the history of it, there weren't that many people in the organization that had direct knowledge of the CIA's involvement. Obviously, like Jocelyn himself was a CIA officer and he was a member of the organization for, um, for his, its whole existence. But most people didn't, didn't know that the CIA was involved. And so when it, when it finally does come out, there's kind of this first wave of like disbelief especially amongst the members, because the network has gotten, you know, so large that a lot of these people, they, they feel really used in a lot of ways, you know, just not knowing that this was part of like a government operation. They thought it was private. Um, in the, the kind of wider world, it's seen as like it validates these ideas of kind of funny enough, like the same thing the Soviets are doing. Like it's this, this example of, a, of the CIA using like, you know, clandestine influence, um, you know, depending on how opposed someone was to America, you know, you could definitely say it was a, a, an example of propaganda. 
or maybe even cultural imperialism. So the reactions are pretty, pretty strong from all sides. Um, so would you, are there any specific thinkers like philosophers or like musician that kind of get involved in this, that become more famous through this program or any specific people in general that you came across that were involved in all of this? Yeah, there were actually, um, I mean, like I said, there were so many people involved with this that, um, you know, a lot of these people tended to be, um, kind of famous, like to their contemporaries, like they were really influential within their, their own kind of day. Um, I do want to find a, a quote from a, from a historian that wrote one of the books that I've been reading. Yeah. This is from uh, Frances Stoner Saunders. She wrote um, The Cultural Cold War, one of the main books I've been reading for this. She says, uh, whether they liked it or not, whether they knew it or not, there were few writers, poets, artists, historians, scientists, or critics in post-war Europe whose names were not in some way linked to this covert enterprise. So a few that I did kind of select for myself is that, you know, and these, and these people would be involved in like varying degrees. Like some of them were kind of dedicated members, other than would just have their writings published in the CCF publications. But there's uh, Tennessee Williams, he's known for um, A Streetcar Named Desire. Uh, Arthur Kessler, who wrote Darkness at Noon. Um, Aldous Huxley, known for Brave New World. And uh, George Orwell, um, I believe he died in about, I think it was like 51, so he didn't really live to see the, the most active days of the Congress. But a lot of his writings, especially um, 1984 and Animal Farm, Animal Farm being like and explicitly it's a, a satire of the Soviet Union, both of those are, are often published and used as kind of um, perfect examples of the, the kind of literature that the CCF was, pointing, was putting out. Okay, so based off pretty much your research and your perception of this program, would you consider it um, successful first in the wider scope of the Cold War, and you think it was successful uh, in Japan? It, it, it's a hard question to answer because, I mean, when you're looking at something like this, I mean, you have to ask, like, well, how do how do you what what do we even define success as, or like, how do you measure that? Because it, it's such a nebulous concept once you kind of get to like you know culture. You know, you can't really measure how much of an impact a magazine might have had, or a, a certain article in, in, in a magazine might have had. But um, the success was, I, I would classify it probably as relatively mixed. Um, it really depended based on the region they were active in. Like in Western Europe and America and also um, Australia, I think they enjoyed a, a pretty fair amount of success. Um, like there was one publication that they had called Encounter, which was was very influential throughout the kind of Anglosphere for quite a few decades, but um, they would. I also do know that at least talking from a, a professor here who has also kind of looked a little more into it, like they were not considered successful in Latin America. For one, is that um, and he actually said that in, in many times they're kind of they're they're they ended up actually inflaming kind of local tensions even more. But when you go to Japan, again, I know, I know it's it's not the most satisfying answer, but it's just it's hard to say because I see evidence that implies yes and no. Like um, like I like I've always been saying with these um, these magazines, they're they're supposed to be a very important part of this kind of 
of what their activities. But um, the the Tokyo Affiliates Office, never their their publication doesn't really reach anything more than I think like seven to nine thousand issues sold, like like or copies sold per issue, which in Tokyo, in a place where they have a very high readership culture, is not a lot at all. But they do kind of enjoy more success in the kind of events that they're holding. Because that, I mean, the CCF being in this cultural sphere, they're, they're involved in a lot of different things. And one of the things that I always saw from the, or at least from my, my primary source research, was that the, the Japan Culture Forum held um, international artist exhibits. I believe they're called, they're called International Young Artist Exhibitions. And um, those were interesting because while I was kind of looking through the, um, like the list of winners, because you know they have like cash prizes and, and scholarships for these, um, I saw a few artists who actually did go on to be fairly influential in the kind of Japanese modernist scene. Um, one example of that was a, uh, yeah, Yosaku Meda. So, in Japan. Not really. So they, they were they did have enjoy some success, but it's kind of mitigated by the fact and what kind of drew me to study Japan in the first place was that they receive like one of the largest stipends out of out of all the offices. There's like 35 countries that they're active in. And I think Japan gets like the third most amount of money. So they're they're, they're getting these these huge amounts of, of financial resources, but the results are still just too mixed to say that it, it's really successful. It's interesting. So what do you think the overall legacy of the Congress is? Because obviously we're not living in a bilateral world today where it's the Soviet Union or the U.S. And if you're a country you know, in between, you're either with one side or you're with the other. So obviously in the world today with all these different ideas and stuff. Do you think that this sort of cultural influence kind of goes on directly or indirectly in certain parts of the world? Or do you think governments sort of try and project their influence, not just economically or militarily, but culturally still? I, I would say absolutely. And I, I think that probably is kind of the biggest lesson to take away from the Congress for Cultural Freedom was that, you know, decades ago, even with the level of technology that they had back then, they could, the U.S. government could do this kind of globe-spanning, you know, multi-year campaign to influence global culture, and whether or not it was, you know, maybe can't say it was successful, but we also can't say that it didn't have any impact, you know, something must have resulted from it. And so I, I would certainly say that, yeah, the, the kind of model of the, the Congress for Cultural Freedom, although maybe that's not employed, there is undoubtedly a lot of, um, like that kind of maybe manipulation, like that's that social manipulation. I mean, especially online nowadays, like we know that there's like in, in Russia and China, they have these kind of like these armies of people who post under like different accounts, you know, they, they post, um, you know, anti-American or pro, you know, whatever opinions to kind of influence people who might be reading to think that, you know, certain views are maybe more popular than they actually are. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think today how it's almost, it seems worse because individuals can do this and countries can do this on a scale that certainly wasn't at the time at the cultural um, center. So for you, what what's the most like interesting part um, of your research and if there's anything more you would like to add? For me, the, the most interesting part of my research, um, I took... While I was here, I took a, um, a class on the Russian avant-garde, uh, which, I, which I really enjoyed because, you know, just kind of from an artistic standpoint, that's always been one of my favorite styles. And combining that with my research here has been really fascinating because, like, the, uh, the Russian avant-garde was, was very much known for, like, its, its, its experiment, experimentality, its subjectivity, and its kind of engagement with the viewer. And that was actually the official art style of the Soviet Union for, I believe, a decade. As it was adopted as the official style by Lenin. But by 1933, um, Joseph Stalin and his kind of centralization of the Soviet Union into a totalitarian state, he ends up illegalizing that entire, that entire artistic style under punishment of Gulag. And he, he substitutes it with this, this different kind of artistic style called uh, socialist realism, which is, is very interesting because it's kind of one of those Soviet contradictions in of itself, because it's not a realism, it's not realistic at all, but it's instead this like very romanticized view of like what utopian socialism could look like. There's a lot of like, you know, playing into uh, Stalin's cult of personality with the but the reason I bring it up is because I think it's so interesting and frankly ironic that when you kind of look at it from that kind of pulled back perspective, the, the field of modernism and abstract expressionalism, which were the two artistic styles that the, the CIA was using the CCF to kind of you know, support, like they would always um, host those kinds of artistic, um, ex those, those exhibits with these kind of uh, styles in mind. And so it's just kind of funny to see how they, they took, like, like modernism kind of takes that same influence from the Russian avant-garde and kind of that like subjectivity and et cetera. And so it, it's ironic to see how the CCF kind of used that in of itself as like a weapon against the Soviets. And they, they, took, they took this, the ideas of this art style that the Soviet Union was pioneering in its early days. And then when Stalin kind of takes over the entire state, they throw that back at him and they kind of use that as like a weapon against him. Yeah, so would you like to add any more thoughts uh, or final thoughts, anything that we might have missed that you think listeners should uh, look into or know about? I mean, if you, if you just wanted to look into this or read more about this topic, I would recommend uh, Peter Coleman's The Liberal Conspiracy or uh, Francis Stoner Saunders' The Cultural Cold War. Those are the two books that I kind of relied on most for this topic. And, you know, they both go into it with way more detail and, you know, put it way more eloquently than I can. So this topic's interesting. I'd recommend those. Awesome. Well, I definitely want to thank Dylan for coming on. I think this is a super interesting topic that I had no idea about. Um, and I think our listeners are going to find super interesting. So I definitely encourage 
you guys to go and check out the books you recommended and definitely look on uh, look into this in general. Uh, the CIA, I know the CIA has um, their own documents um, and website documenting what they did. Um, super interesting topic and definitely want to thank you uh, for being our first interview of this podcast um, on a super interesting topic. So thanks for coming on. And thank you for having me. Yeah, so again, uh, just to follow up with uh, this interview, which I thought was super informative and uh, really cool, up, uh, just super informative, again, on a topic I don't know nothing about, or I knew nothing about, obviously, I know more about it now. Um, again, I don't have um, interviews lined up for, I think, the next week. So um, again, I definitely want to emphasize that I'll be... Um, kind of publishing episodes um, around topics based off um, people I'm able to uh, interview, whether it's uh, people at Denver or different professors um, across the country or historians. Um, yeah, so I'm definitely going to try and keep um, dropping an episode every Sunday with an interview because, again, uh, I'm sure you guys enjoyed not listening to me all the time. Um, so, uh, again, some more Housekeeping things, uh, definitely follow the uh, History Does You Instagram over um, uh, where we publish, uh, where I publish uh, different episodes and um, uh, give updates on things that are going on. Um, I'm also looking to uh, potentially do a Twitter, but um, again, I definitely want to focus on building up um, the Instagram account um, before. Um, I continue to uh, try and move to other uh, social media platforms. Um, I also, again, tell your friends, uh, tell your family about this podcast. I think, again, I'm definitely going to have to inform people at the grassroots level right now and kind of just build this audience from the ground up. Uh, so, again, thank you uh, for listening. Um, I hope you guys learned a lot today about the Congress for Cultural Freedom. Um, I know I learned a lot. Um and I definitely think that uh, this is, um, you know, with these interviews, are we're going to be able to cover such a wide variety of topics and really learn um, what people are passionate about in the field of history. Um, again, because I think history continues to be relevant today. Um, and I think this is, again, a relevant topic to today. And I'm, again, um, thank you again for the support. Um and um, definitely keep coming back for episodes because they're going to be coming every Sunday and we'll definitely continue to um, cover a lot of different and cool topics.